Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight we get a sense of how healthy the movie theater business is, emerging from the pandemic shutdowns, and ahead of National Cinema Day on Saturday when there'll be cheap movie tickets available. We head to Pakistan where eight weeks of monsoon rains have triggered the worst floods in that country's history. Tens of millions of people are displaced, a million homes destroyed, farms, roads, and bridges have been washed away, and now the threat of disease is a prime concern. We learned about a new report that found several products in Canadian dollar stores contained components with high levels of lead and other toxic heavy metals, and what the authors want to see done about it. But first, Health Canada approves the first Omicron-specific vaccine for COVID-19. That's big news. Health officials say it offers increased protection against what is now the dominant strain of the virus, but it doesn't target the most dominant subvariants circulating in the country now. So when will it be rolled out and how much of a difference will it make? First up tonight, some pretty big news today from Health Canada. They've approved the first Omicron-specific vaccine for COVID-19. Uh, a big boost, obviously, since Omicron pretty much accounts for all the new, new COVID infections in this country. However, the, the bivalent vaccine targets BA1, the one that's been approved, and that's not uh, directly targeting the most dominant strains circulating now, such as BA5 and BA4, which make up more than 90% of current infections. Uh, Canada's ordered 12 million doses of this new vaccine. A chief medical advisor, Dr. Supriya Sharma, says she expects submissions from Pfizer and Moderna for the even more updated vaccine in the next few weeks. So perhaps a new one is coming along as well. But she says the newly approved one includes the original Omicron strain and provides an excellent immunity boost against COVID-19. After completing a thorough and independent scientific review of the evidence, Health Canada has determined that this bivalent Moderna spike vax booster has met the requirements for the safety and the effectiveness uh, from the regulations. This marks a milestone in Canada's response to this pandemic. We'll continue to look at other options, but you know we were faced with the fact that we were looking at a lot of provinces and territories that were going to be starting their campaigns, their fall campaigns, some as early as August, and we wanted to make sure that that there were options available. There's Canada's chief medical advisor, Dr. Supriya Sharma. Uh, the UK approved this very same vaccine two weeks ago. The US, though, uh, gave Moderna and Pfizer's new Omicron fighting shots the green light earlier this week, but theirs targets the newer and more prevalent strains of Omicron. Uh, again, we expect those to be submitted for approval in Canada in the near future. Um, officials say there should be enough doses of the updated booster available for all adults this fall, uh, but it is obviously up to the province and the territories to decide how these new bo boosters will be rolled out and when. So what exactly does this mean? Should we be waiting for this other vaccine to arrive before getting this one? Lots of questions, of course, tonight. And here to help answer them is Dr. Zane Chagla. He's an infectious disease physician and associate professor at McMaster University in Hamilton. Thanks for your time. Hi, good evening. So we've been waiting for these for a while. I understand really this new, uh, obviously it's in the name, but uh, it's two vaccines in one. How does it work? So it, when we go back to how these vaccines work, they use mRNA, which is kind of the building blocks of how we make proteins to make the spike protein in our body that then generates the immune response. The difference between this and the original vaccine is the original vaccine had a mRNA molecule that made the original spike protein to the original COVID-19 virus that we saw in 2020. The update here is half of the mRNA in this construct uses the original, but half uses an mRNA molecule that is modified so our body makes a spike protein 
that resembles the BA1 variant. And, and that allows for our immune system to really say, hey, there's something here that looks like BA1, make an immune response. And that then, you know, gives us protection against COVID-19. And in studies of this vaccine, as a fourth dose, in both people that had had COVID-19 before and didn't have COVID-19 before, we see about double the antibody production to the Omicron variant that we did see as compared to the original vaccine. So good news here, it really is very high levels of antibodies, and that should translate into more protection of for severe disease and high-risk individuals, and probably a little bit more protection against infection, although it's still unclear how long that lasts. Yeah, because the Omicron variant has been a real game changer in, in some ways. And there's a word I shouldn't use, another slang word. Uh, but it has changed a lot because of, because just of how quickly it, 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 it's mutated. Uh, so even this one, which I gather they've been working on for quite a while, doesn't really uh, target those main variants that we're now seeing, BA4 and BA5. Is that a concern at all? And how effective is this one against all Omicron variants? Yeah, so it is a good question. And, and I think we have to take two things in the context here. One, there are differences between BA1 and BA4, BA5. There are some differences that make it a bit more invasive. The companies, Moderna specifically, took a look at you know that what happened to those people that got the BA1 vaccine, the bivalent vaccine that's been approved, and saw their antibody titers to BA4, BA5. It had come down, but they were still relatively high. And so there is probably some protection there, more than the current vaccines for BA4, BA5. And I think we're learning. There's data that just came out uh, yesterday from the New England Journal of Medicine, Portugal, for people that had BA1, that they had significant protection against BA4, BA5. Not to say they couldn't get it, but there was 80% protection at a few months and 70% protection even further than that. And so, you know, again, even our real-life models for people that got infected in the first wave is that they do have protection against BA5. So, you know, theoretically, a vaccine that targets BA1 should still have significant protection against BA5. And of course, as um, Health Canada officials were pointing out today, by the time the BA4, BA5 uh, targeting vaccine comes out, we could be on to another variant. So it, it, it's it's the timing. And I think it was mentioned today in that press conference as well. What was really important here was that fall is coming and more protection is needed. Absolutely. This, virus, this vaccine is here. It's been produced. You know, the other issue is as these variants come to reformulate the vaccine, go through some clinical trials and tests, get the vaccine to market, you know, produce enough to get to market, there's going to be huge lags there, right? The U.S. is going through an approval for BA4, BA5, but it doesn't guarantee that they're going to have enough vaccine on the shelf for tomorrow to deal with it. And unfortunately, the clinical data for human trials of BA4, BA5 vaccine aren't actually there. Uh, what's being approved by the FDA is actually animal model data. Not to say that doesn't, doesn't mean it's going to work. It probably will work very well. But I think Canada kind of looked at the standard here and said, we have an application here for a vaccine that is available that we can get tomorrow and, in fact, is coming into the country tomorrow, you know, and has human-level data to show that will benefit. You know, this is probably the vaccine to move on now until we get better information about what a BA4, BA5 vaccine looks like in the future. And in the meantime, today, it was made very explicit that they are continuing to ask uh, Moderna and Pfizer to... Uh, to, to at least look seek approval for those other uh, vaccines that target the other subvariants. Absolutely. So this is going to be an ongoing process, but it's really exciting. Look, in 
November of 2020, I think we were talking about, you know, the first vaccine and the potential and what this is going to do. We're now talking in September of 2022 about adaptive vaccines and potentially a platform that could keep up with this virus's evolution. Uh, and so, you know, the, this is really the technology moving ahead. Yes, we may not get the perfect vaccine this time, but I think we're going to learn a lot in the next few months. We're going to learn whether or not adapting these vaccines quickly is like adapting the flu shot. Uh, and hopefully, again, it gives us the ability to make more vaccines that are tailored to what's circulating as compared to, you know, uh, relying on the original strain of the vaccine. Dr. Zane Chagla is with us, an infectious disease physician and associate professor at McMaster University. We're talking about Health Canada approving the first Omicron-specific vaccine for COVID-19 uh, today. Big news. It'll be rolling out very soon. Um, I was seeing some interesting numbers, uh, Dr. Chagla, today, just about how much uh, vaccination rates have fallen in Canada since uh, a really big uptake of the first two doses. But when it came to that third booster, it's down around uh, down around 60%, which is low amongst G7 nations. I guess even with this booster, there's going to be a lot of work that needs to be done to try to convince people to go out and get it. Yeah, absolutely. There is a lot of fatigue here, right? And, and I think people had been promised, you know, that two doses would be enough and people would not necessarily have to come back. There's obviously been a lot of uh, stigmatization around the vaccines and division. And I think a lot of people did get COVID in, in the interim. And, you know, Canada's immunity task force information uh, suggests, you know, up to 60% of individuals got COVID uh, and the most of them got them over, over the Omicron wave. And so, you know, I think there is a lot to reach out to people if you're, you know, talking to people, particularly the highest risk and saying, look, this next vaccine is to get you through the winter. It's to get you, you know, as much immunity as possible. Uh, even if you've had COVID, there's still good reason, especially long after the COVID, to get the vaccine, to keep pushing your immune response to make sure that you don't get sick. But there's a lot of that proactive messaging that does need to be done to reach people. As everyone's a little bit on different pages now, as they were when we start giving vaccines, but everyone was really naive. And, and again, COVID really wasn't spreading significantly as compared to how it has been spreading over the last six months. Yeah, certainly some of the... Um some of the awareness of what it's like to have it has certainly dropped. I don't think I, I don't know anyone who hasn't gotten it at this point, uh, just about. Um, one of the things that, that, that I, I found interesting, though, is that, you know, talking to someone the other night about the healthcare crisis, the crisis in the healthcare system, uh, it sort of came down to, well, if you don't try to prevent more COVID cases this fall and winter, what do you do to try to ease the strain on our healthcare system right now? And that's clearly doing your part, right? It's not about how sick you get. It's about doing your part to keep hospitals clear. Yeah, absolutely. Look, you know, again, I think we, we know the biggest benefits of these vaccines are to keep people out of hospital, right? And that means, you know, most people getting their booster dose, but specifically making sure those highest risk people get their booster dose, that they are not represented in healthcare like they're overrepresented in healthcare. That's the elderly, that's those who are, you know, compromised, that's those with major medical conditions that they should be first in line to be getting boosters so that they are not represented in healthcare, and they should be first in line to get treatments if they have breakthrough infections to make sure they're not, you know, seen in healthcare in that sense. I think those two things are the biggest things that we have to prevent hospitalization. Yes, there is some, some merit to wearing a mask indoors and staying home when you're sick and making sure that you limit your spread, especially when you're contagious, or at least you know, staying home until you're feeling better from the COVID-19 as some provinces have moved to. 
But at the same time, I think the biggest bang for the buck still is making sure those right people get vaccinated and up to date with their vaccines. As again, there is a loss for people, you know, an 80 year old that has two doses of vaccines that were given in 2021 is not safe going into the season. And they really do need that extra protection moving forward. And I guess we're going to see that uh, reflected in how the provinces and territories roll this out. I understand, though, the vaccine, it's not like they're announcing something that's coming up uh, in a while. This is arriving very soon, is it not? Yeah, it sounds like the first shipment of about 800,000 doses is coming in tomorrow, and it's going to be distributed to the provinces. I think at least the first initial rollout will probably be of that first 800,000 doses of the highest-risk individuals, so those living in congregate care settings like long-term care, some of their caregivers, perhaps some of the immunocompromised and elderly individuals in the communities. Uh, and that the bulk of the 12 million doses, I think 11 million left, would be coming in through September. And so, again, we could be seeing the general population being offered this somewhere in three to six weeks once those shipments come in and provinces can actually administer them, which, again, means that most people kind of going into the same time that they get their flu shot in, in uh, post-Thanksgiving period are going to be pretty eligible to be getting their updated COVID-19 vaccine, which is great going into the winter season. And just a reminder, because this is just human nature, right? We don't need to wait around for that other one to come along, the one that targets BA4, BA5. No, I agree. And I think, again, there's no guarantees here. This is an updated vaccine. We know from human immune models that BA1 will still give BA5 immunity. You know, perfection is the enemy of good, as we said. And, and again, like we would rather, especially as we're seeing more viral transmission, especially as we get indoors more, we need as much protection as possible for those highest risk groups. So don't wait around for that BA4, BA5 vaccine. The, the worst case scenario with a BA1 vaccine is that your immune system is almost there, but may not control the virus, but enough to keep you at home without getting sick. Uh, and so, you know, we should be getting the next vaccine that's available rather than waiting for the vaccine that's yet to come. Dr. Shagla, as always, thank you so much for your time tonight. All the best. Take care. What he has to teach you may very well mean the difference between life and death. Your reputation precedes you. I have to admit, I wasn't expecting an invitation back. They're called orders, Maverick. Top Gun Maverick. Yeah, it's been a pretty big summer for movies this year. It sort of felt like the old days, a summer full of blockbusters, uh, Doctor Strange, Jurassic Park, Minions, all those sequels did well as well. Um, but Top Gun Maverick was the Top Gun this summer. Um, one of my fondest memories of youth was something called 250 Tuesdays. If you're old enough to remember it, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Every Tuesday at movie theaters, you pay 250 to go see your favorite film. So often you'd end up seeing something like the first Top Gun back in 1986 many times because if you, there was nothing new out to see. You'd just go see something you'd already seen. Uh, that was a very long time ago. Let's fast forward to Saturday. You can live a little bit of that nostalgia on National Cinema Day when movie tickets will be, select movie tickets, I gather, will be three bucks in any format, they'll be sold at discounted rates plus taxes at select theaters in Canada, the U.S., Britain, elsewhere. Um, in this country, Cineplex, Cinemaguzo, uh, Cine Entreprise, there's a bunch taking part in this along with another, another number of independent theaters, all to celebrate movies. It's not only being done for the goodness of celebrating the day. Of course, Labor Day, I gather, is traditionally 
not a great weekend or Labor Day weekend is not great for the box office. So this is a great way to get people back into the theater as well. And despite capping off a good summer, um, there are still lots of, there's lots of competition out there, obviously, from streaming services and the rising cost of living means I have no doubt that families are putting off things like nights at the movies, one of those discretionary spending uh things that can get cancelled. Um, and of course, there's been the struggles of Cineworld. Uh, I don't know if you've been reading about those, the second largest cinema chain in the world that's uh, toying with bankruptcy because of $5 billion in debt. Uh, so what is the state of movies and movie theaters this day? We knew they had a hard time through the pandemic, uh, and there's lots riding on this year and next, I imagine, uh, to see if they'll return to normal or or no, health again. So joining me now with a little more on that is David A. Gross. He's a principal with movie consultancy franchise Enlightenment Research. Thanks for your time tonight. Good to be here, Ben. 250 Tuesdays, that brought that, even just talking about it brought back good memories. But uh, National Cinema Day, it sounds like a good idea. $3 movie tickets, I'm sure, will be embraced by many. Good idea, yes. Um you know, it's an invitation for people to, that haven't been back since the pandemic to to get back and remember uh, what a good experience and good value movies are. And, uh, you know, we, we had a, a very strong May. You, you summarized it really well. We had a very strong May, June, and July. Um, you know, uh, Top Gun, uh, Thor, Minions, Doctor Strange, Jurassic, you, you mentioned them. And during that run, we were pretty close to pre-pandemic. We were pretty close to 2019 box office levels. Not quite there, but it sure felt like it. The momentum was strong. Movies were opening strong all over the world. Um, and even even some of the original uh, stories that were not franchises like Nope and Elvis, they've done very well uh, where the crawdads sing. So, you know, the takeaway from the, the early part, first half of the summer was very positive. People felt like, okay, we're back. Um, the audiences are are willing and able, and it was happening. Uh, but in August and September, we're in a quiet run now. Um, I think some of that is that the studios had their own supply chain, so to speak, issues. I mean, these movies take 12 to 18 months to make and plan and market, and a lot of that was interrupted during the pandemic. Um, some movies were sent to streaming. Some were, were canceled. Some were delayed. So we're, we have a hole in the schedule at the moment, it's atypical. It starts picking up again strongly in October. There's a there's a good animated movie called Lyle Lyle Crocodile. Um, Don't worry, darling. Um, there's going to be a, a a Shazam spinoff with The Rock called uh, Black Adam. So things will pick up pick up in October. We're a little slow at the moment, and so the timing for this this special weekend and the and the discount ticket is terrific. A lot of these movies that we're talking about are still in release, so they're still available. If people haven't seen those, they're still even even Top Gun, which came out in late May, is still playing very well. But um, that's really what this is about. It's an invitation to say, come back, you know, uh, those who haven't. And also people are generally happy with the conditions. I think there was some fear during the pandemic that, you know, how safe would it be? But the overwhelming you know, majority of moviegoers are coming away satisfied and they, they've really gone to great lengths to make sure it's a, a safe environment. 
David, one of the things that I noticed, though, is speaking to a lot of my parents and their friends and so on, people, boomers, really, they haven't gone back much. You know, they used to be kind of, they would go to movies fairly regularly. They wouldn't see the same movies, obviously. They weren't uh, there for the blockbusters. But it feels like they haven't gone back as much. Is that is that just anecdotal or are you seeing that as well? I think that's fair. I think, you know, older movies and, and family movies, those two groups, are probably the, the 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 slowest to come back. The you know the 18 to 34 year olds, the fanboys, the superhero movies, those came back you know super strong, no problem. Um, but you're right. Um, I think older movie older moviegoers, you know, got comfortable with things on streaming, and it's understandable. And I think parents of the of the kids for the animation movies have had some lingering concern for the kids. So those. You're right. Those groups have been a little bit slower. I, you know, they're getting there. I mean, a movie like Elvis is, you know, that was over 35, over 45 year olds. So that showed nicely and it showed that they will come back, but but not quite at the levels of pre-pandemic, as you said. Yeah. Are there any other incentives? I've noticed, you know, that there are the, th- the cinemas are working hard to try and bring everybody back. Uh and, mm-hmm. and are, there, are there other incentives out there nowadays that people can take advantage of? Because obviously, as I was mentioning in the intro, when you think about cost of living issues, some of the discretionary spending that goes away are things like movie nights out with the family, right? That can be, uh, you know, it's not mm-hmm. as expensive as going to a ball game, but it, it can be pricey. Are there any options out there being offered by cinemas to try to bring back those groups that maybe have been more reluctant to go back? Sure. Um, and I'm, I have to say, I'm speaking from, you know, your Southern neighbor, I'm down in Los Angeles, right, um, of course. but here are the big chains. I'm, I'm sure you have this in Canada, you know, have clubs, uh, discount, uh, months, cards, uh, loyalty programs. And I think that that can help, but, um, you also touched on something important and good, which is that really, you know, a, a, a ticket in a big city, at least in the States is, I don't know, 12, $15, that does compare well with, you know, try going to a sports game these days or a or a live concert show or a theater show. And it's really still a fraction. And, you know, the experience is very good. So we have that advantage. It's still a good value, particularly the movies that that really work on the big screen. And all these big hits that we're talking about really have some kind of visual strength. IMAX, um, you know, they're they're meant to be seen on the big screen. The ones, you know, for the older uh, audiences that are more story driven and character driven, those those you know you can see those at home, but um, but there are programs, and I'm sure your big chains, uh, I'm sure your big chains in Canada are doing the same thing. I always find it odd that nowadays, you know, when the when the Oscar nominations come out, most of those movies are things you haven't seen in the theater these days. I wonder if that's going to change back at all. I wonder if at a time um, people are going to get more comfortable with going to see sort of those what we, we used to be called sort of more adult <laughs> films, slower films, right? In the in the theaters, right. the likes of the moon and the moonlights and so on. Because I realize a lot of people. Um, these days sort of watch those movies at home more often because they're available and it's comfortable, but it'd be, you know, they are made for a bigger screen, obviously. So you're losing something when you see them um, on a small screen. You know, I, I could think of many examples of movies that have been critically acclaimed for the last three or four years, four or five years uh, that are still better sure. on a big screen than they are on a small screen. Sure. Um, the streamers, you know, they, they deserve some credit. They really, they moved into those artistic uh, film productions at strongly and they, they're very active and they, you know, Coda, for instance, 
last year that was an Apple Plus production. And, you know, the list goes on and on. Netflix is very strong. And I don't, you know, I think that some of the art theater owners are frustrated, but basically for the business, it's probably a good thing. They're making more of these movies than ever. We'll see it again. I was just looking at lists uh, of award type films that are coming up. And uh, it's interesting this year, it may tilt back a little bit to the studios, but, um, but you're right. The streamers are strong now. And um, some of these movies get a theatrical release. We call it. They're, they're released into theaters and some do not. And they all qualify for the, for the awards. Um, we seem to like have sort of a hybrid situation and, I think I think that's where we're going to stay with those types of films, you know, the indie artistic movies, the the giant hits that play every country around the world on the big screen. They will they will remain on the big screen. But but this this uh, end of year award season, which is coming up now around the corner for November and December, I've been looking at those lists and there there's a you know, another wide mix of streamers of of mini majors we call them uh searchlight for instance is a studio they make them focus features at universal um and i think we'll see that mix and you just never know netflix has been wanting to win a best film uh award they just haven't done it apple kind of kind of got it last year and um uh but you know i think this is where it's going to stay now the, the movies they're less expensive to make uh, they don't always make sense to go onto the big theatrical release. Some do, um, but some don't. And um, so we're going to have this mix, and they're going to be available on on big and small screens at the same time. So National Cinema Day coming up on Saturday. Uh, Three dollar tickets, and that's that's in America here too. Uh, I gather the uh, in England they're doing it as well. So. Uh, is this the first one? Is this the first National Cinema Day? Is this uh, something we're going to start to see year after year? I have not heard of it, and I've been doing this for three, 30 years plus. And, uh, you know, I think it's a great idea. I don't know if they knew that this would be, you know, the optimum. Well, I guess they do. Labor Day is traditionally, as you said, is not the strongest weekend. Uh, so it, that does make sense. But, um, you know, hopefully we'll see it again, and let's, let's uh, hope that people get out and uh, see something good and enjoy it. I know it never rains in Southern California, but if it rains here, I'll probably head <laughs> off to the movies this weekend. Thank you so much, David Agros. I appreciate it. <laughs> You got it. Take care. Well, let's head now to Pakistan. I don't know if you've seen images over the past little while of just the sheer amount of flooding that is happening in that country. One third of the country is underwater tonight. It is apparently receding a little bit, uh, but there is still a lot of damage, a lot of people in need. The impact has been called absolutely devastating. The cause has been heavy monsoon rains. That began in mid-July, so that's eight weeks of relentless rain. But this is unlike anything the country has seen in living memory. 33 million people have been affected. Think of that, 33 million. That's basically almost the size of this country. Many have been displaced, millions. Satellite imagery shows, again, the devastation with entire communities swallowed up by rising rivers and spreading water. It's estimated 1,000 people have died, including 400 kids. More than a million homes have been destroyed and then there's crops, livestock, and infrastructure such as roads and bridges that have been washed away. Here are the country's ministers of climate change and foreign affairs. Right now, Pakistan, one third of Pakistan is underwater, and um, 33 million are affected. 
Please tell me how that is not catastrophic. That is the size of a small country. The fact that Pakistan contributes negligible amounts to the overall uh, carbon footprint, but we do, uh, we are devastated by climate disasters such as these time and time again, and we have to adapt uh, within our limited resources and whatever way we can uh, to live to this live in this new environment. Of course, climate change being pointed to just for the severity of this, as we know, it's the extremes. And this is so extreme. Right now, of course, one of the main concerns is people getting sick. Pakistani health officials and the World Health Organization are reporting outbreaks of waterborne diseases in flood affected areas. Well, joining me now is Abdus Shakurm. He's president of the Akhmadat or Akhitmat Foundation of Pakistan, the largest humanitarian non-governmental organization in the country. They've been deeply involved in just about every facet of this rescue and recovery at this point. Uh, Abdus, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you so much. Good evening. Uh, I guess it is evening there. It's morning here in Pakistan. Yeah, I was. it is Friday morning there, and I was wondering what it was like to wake up on this Friday. I know it's been a very difficult week. What is the situation there today? Uh, well, the situation is uh, still worse, uh, although the rain stopped and uh, we can expect that the people living in uh, water at least don't have to worry about pouring water from the sky, but they are in a difficult situation. As your correspondent has said, uh, the uh, waterborne diseases are now the worst scenario we are facing. Ladies, pregnant ladies, ladies with children, uh, and so many others are all stuck in waters. Uh, virtually, they don't have a dry place to sleep and uh, uh, a place where they can feed their children and the family. So they are dependent on cooked food provided to them through the board, sometimes mostly in Sindh. In other areas, the situation is a little better. Right. Uh, Sindh we, province being uh, one. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, Go Sindh ahead. province being one of the Sindh province being one of the areas that was the most devastated, of course, right? Of the many areas. That's that's very true. Sindh is hard hit. Although Balochistan is also the same, but the terrain of Balochistan is such that water does not uh, stop there. It flows quickly and again come to the Sindh area. So uh, Balochistan is also hard hit and uh, uh, houses are destroyed. But as uh, everybody knows that I'm not going into the detail of losses, I am focusing on the activities which we and the other NGOs, nonprofit organizations are doing. So our yeah. strategy is to provide them the food. This is the utmost importance. We have set uh, 15 different locations, kitchen, where we cook in large amount and then supply it through vehicles to different places and through boats as well. Also, we have set 150 locations, uh, temporary uh, medical camps, and we are focusing on ladies as well. Uh, this is very important because they are most vulnerable uh, sector, uh, need the, the, the help at this time. So we have developed a kit for their personal needs and dividing right. it uh, among the ladies. Just how, how bad has the, I mean, obviously you know uh, that monsoon rains come every year. 
But how much mm -hmm. worse has it been this year? And, and I guess it just never stopped raining, right? It just continued and continued. But it, from what we've been seeing, it, it is simply something that, that has not been seen in, uh, in your country for a very, for it, if ever, a it, very long time. That's right. That's right. It, it is slowed down. It's not now uh, that amount which was a week ago. Uh, but still, in some part of Sindh and Balochistan, the rain is a, a real threat. Uh, but at the at the same time, the the uh, worst change is that the water, especially which is uh, in Sindh districts, uh, there is no outlet uh, for the water to go into uh, uh, the sea, and uh, it's very slow. And uh, people expect that the water with sun uh, will dry out and uh, hopefully it will take a month or so uh, for them to find the dry land for their homes and for their kids. Right. Because I imagine that once the floodwaters recede, um, there's just an awful lot of things that have been destroyed, uh, whether it be homes or farmland or bridges and roads. The rebuilding is going to take a very long time, I imagine. Definitely. It will take... Uh, quite a long time uh, for them to, uh, to to be settled. And, of course, their crops are gone. Uh, their fruit uh, are all destroyed and homes there. The animals are uh, as well. Uh, about 700 animals died. So the livelihood now will depend on the health which uh, people can provide. And we expect international help, uh, especially for the farmers, and the, the small laborers in those neighborhoods. I've been seeing some of the work that your group has been doing because you've been doing just about everything. I've even seen images of your volunteers rescuing people from floodwaters. It's amazing the work that NGOs do in Pakistan, but clearly mm -hmm. you've really had to be called on in these situations uh, because without you, people go without the help, right? Uh, that's, that's very true. Uh, actually, we were ill-equipped as well. I mean, uh, not expecting that kind of water. I, I am now 74 year old, and I haven't seen anything worse than this uh, in Pakistan before. Uh, so the, the amount of boats needed in those areas, of course, we lack that. We have uh, 17 boats, but they are working day and night, and there are places and uh, villages which uh, uh, we are not able to reach to them as well. So uh, quickly we are trying to improve the, uh, you know, the equipment and the, the structure which we need. Of course, the uh, bridges are broken, the power lines are all out, uh, the, the roads are uh, destroyed, and so many things which, of course, NGOs cannot do. This is the part of uh, government and international community to help into them. We are struggling uh, to, to let the uh, victims survive uh, for coming uh, weeks and months only. Our guest is Abdus Shakurm. He's the president of the Al-Hidmat Foundation of Pakistan. We're talking about the just the devastating flooding that's been happening in that country. More than 33 million people, one in seven, 
Pakistanis have been affected by the flooding. Um, the economy there, of course, was already struggling a bit. More than a million homes have been damaged or destroyed. Uh, half a million people are displaced now, living in camps. Um, Mr. Shakurm was talking about that before the break as well, just what they're trying to do to prevent disease from spreading in those camps right now. I understand one of the big uh, concerns, too, will be a lot of crops have been destroyed and feeding people is going to be a challenge. Uh, is that a concern? Definitely. This is a big concern for all of us. The the coming crops, which will be sowed in uh, uh, October in Finn, uh, two, two problems. One, dry, land will not be dry at that time point. And even those areas where uh, we are in a position to sow, the farmers will not be having any seed with them. So this is an important thing. This is wheat, which is the lifeline for Pakistanis. This is their food. So it is very important that the government and the other institutions come forward and provide them with seeds in those areas so that they can uh, at least sow the new crop uh, for the coming months. Otherwise, Pakistan will have another crisis of food uh, to import from uh, other countries. And again, this will be a very, very difficult situation in which we all will be price hike and so on and so forth. Right, uh, of course. The yeah. second thing is to uh, develop uh, temporary, at least, homes for them. And we need uh, hundred billions of uh, rupees, even in, in dollars, it, it would be a very high amount which is needed to to help them to survive. Uh, look, uh, one million houses are destroyed. So we are trying to make uh, a model, small, low-cost housing scheme for them. And, but of course, uh, uh, the limitation uh, of the financial resources is always there. So a, a yeah. big help is needed in this regard as well. I know the Americans announced $30 million this week. Canada has announced $5 million in funding. The UN is looking for $160 million U.S. Uh, I guess all of it will go to help. How concerned are you, Mr. Shakurm, about this becoming something that happens often? Uh, that the reality of, of what's of, of just the changes we're seeing uh, climactically are going to have this kind of impact in a country such as yours? Uh, well, the changes, uh, of course, the weather changes are there. We, we uh, at least knew there was a forecast that the glaciers are melting. Mm -hmm. And uh, because of the weather changes, of course, we, we did not contribute into the, uh, the carbon cycle, uh, which is uh, creating all those things. Uh, but unfortunately, we are victim of that. And the glaciers, you know, our north uh, is... Uh, uh, something, I mean, the, the tallest uh, mountains are in Pakistan and if glaciers are melting, uh, we are in serious danger. Uh, also, we did not have uh, the waterways. We did not, uh, we lack the lakes uh, to hold the water. Uh, see, right. in uh, uh, July and August, we receive amount of water unimaginable. But when we go into December and January, uh, then everybody is looking for the water. 
and we uh, are uh, you know short of water for our uh, crops and even for in some areas for the drinking purposes so the infrastructure is needed to cope with these kind of problems and uh, i do hope that our government realizes that the corruption is also another uh, real danger for uh, a nation uh, like us uh, so uh, we are worried uh, for the future well, Abdus Shakur, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to uh, to me, to Canadians tonight. We, of course, our thoughts are with you as you continue to work hard to try to provide as much relief and as much help as you can to so many in need. Thank you so much for giving us the chance to let our uh, uh, Canadian and American uh, brothers and sisters know the situation in Pakistan. Yeah, we've been watching. Uh, thank you so much for your time tonight. Okay, thank you. I may have already told you this, but when I was a kid, my mom was a consumer affairs reporter. Uh, so when I was young, she was always testing things out. So we was always, I always had these products in the house like car seats and toxic cleansing products and hockey helmets, you name it. We always had things that she was working on comparing, making sure they were safe and so on. This was sort of the glory days of consumer reporting, you know, around the time of, of how... Of, um, of uh, Ralph Nader and so forth. And it was really kind of an incredible time where a lot of difference was made in the product, the safety of products uh, throughout that era in the late 60s into the 70s and through on. And we're sort of reaping the benefits of it today. So I always pay attention to these kinds of stories because I find them interesting. So a new report from the group Environmental Defense caught my eye. Uh, the organization reported on tests conducted on dozens of products purchased at popular Canadian dollar stores, and at least one in four products they found tested contained toxic chemicals, including lead in children's products and electronics, such as headphones. Now, many of the findings were within allowable limits under current regulation, but the report says those limits aren't strong enough. So we're dealing with two different things here. The stores uh, say their products meet all applicable Canadian product regulations, of course. But joining me with more on this now is Tim Gray. He's the executive director at Environmental Defense, the organization that released the report called Passing the Buck, the Toxic Cost of Dollar Store Products in Canada. Thanks for your time tonight, Tim. Thanks for having me. So what did you set out to find here? What was the hypothesis going in? Yeah, we wanted to have a look at uh, what people were buying uh, at uh, dollar stores, and this seemed timely to us just because of what's going on um, in the economy right now. A lot of people are, are shopping at places where they can save some money. And we also noticed in some of our work that uh, a lot of stores, more high-end stores uh, with more expensive products, are advertising toxics-free um, products, um, you know, whether that be hand creams, lotions, or, you know, manufactured products. And we were thinking, well, you know, it's kind of interesting. It seems like more and more it may be that you need to pay your way out of being exposed to toxic chemicals. And so we thought, well, let's have a look at some of these, um, you know, cheaper, more disposable manufactured goods and uh, and some of these uh, just routine things that you can buy at dollar stores and see what's in them. And, uh, you know, what we found is that there is a lot of uh, toxic chemicals there. And, um, you know, some of them, the levels of uh, potential contamination from uh, things like uh, small earphones and stuff like that are, are very, very high. And, the, and the, you know, the ability for kids to get a hold of these things and to be exposed to very high levels of lead, for example, is, is, is pretty clear. So it really, to us, pointed out the need both for 
uh, greater discipline on behalf of the companies themselves to make sure they're not you know, carrying this stuff, do better testing, better monitoring. But probably more importantly is for the, the federal government to um, you make sure that the, the legislation that's coming before Parliament this fall, which would be uh, updating the Canadian Environmental Protection Act, that that legislation actually addresses uh, you know, this issue and makes sure that um, Canadians are not being exposed to these kind of uh, risks when they're uh, shopping at any store. Yeah, I, I mean, just so people don't panic, I mean, you found, of course, I imagine that most of the products, the 70% of what you tested and most of them was okay. But where did you yeah. find the problems? Yeah, we, we looked at a number of things. So um, cash register receipts, uh, food can linings, microwave popcorn bags, and then a whole variety of household items. So that's everything from uh, headphones to earbuds to plastic toys, etc., and we found a range of um, contamination there, um, very high levels of lead, for example, in the solder on uh, earbuds and headphones, um, persistent chemicals like PFAS uh, in a number of plastic items, um, BPA or BPS uh, in uh, cash register receipts, and uh, phthalates in some of the plastic items. So uh, a number of these chemicals are hormone mimics, and uh, what that means is that a very, very small amount of this, uh, these chemicals in your body uh, are actually telling your body to do things in a way that your own body's hormones would. So they can be very dangerous, even very minute quantities. And, of course, lead is a neurotoxin and uh, not, uh, not really safe at any level for children, for example. But uh, we found very, very high levels in the solder in these uh, headphones. Uh, um, 90% of the solder, in fact, was pure lead. So um, very, yeah. very high levels. That was certainly the one that caught everyone's attention, I think. Was, was that the one that surprised you the most? Because one would think that lead certainly wouldn't be in many products, any products these days. Yeah, that one was surprising um, because there's such a viable alternatives. I mean, we, you know, you've, you've probably seen this, and you're, you know, when you're buying things, it'll be advertised quite often that it contains lead-free solder. So there's there's no need really to be, you know, selling things that could end up in uh, the hands of a child or in their mouth or something. Uh, you know, that has got such high lead levels, and it really underscores the need to really think through um, where some of these products are going to end up. And, you know, especially at end of life, you know, they can end up in the in, in a toy box or broken up and spreading lead all over your house and stuff. So, um, you know, they're meeting the requirement in that the lead can't be on the surface of the product. But you think of something like an earbud that easily gets broken or a kid puts it in their mouth, you know, small kids especially love to shove everything in their mouth. Um, yeah. They're going to end up with this lead, uh, you know, taking up this lead, even though, um, you know, even though it's completely legal. Do we have any sense whether this is a problem that exists only in these kinds of products, or is it more prevalent elsewhere? Or I know you just tested these products, but is it something that uh, that we should be aware of elsewhere? Or do you think this is really limited to sort of the, the really low end for these sorts of items like headphones, for instance? Yeah, I mean, I think it's more prevalent in some of these lower end products, but a number of these products, you know, are, are sold in all kinds of stores, especially things like, um, you know, the receipts you get from cash registers, you know, a lot of most stores are using those kind of cash register receipts. We've had some luck working with individual retail chains to get rid of those, like with Metro and 
uh, Costco and and um, and Loblaws, for example, have all you know, removed uh, BPS and BPA from their receipts. So you know there is some voluntary action that's going on, but it does underscore the need for for government to act and um, you know to make sure that these chemicals that are disproportionately impacting more vulnerable communities, whether they be economically vulnerable and, and uh, you know, have fewer choices around where they can shop and what they can afford to buy, or that people are vulnerable because of a uh, physiological stage throughout in their life, you know, pregnant women, young children, babies uh, developing in the womb, all of uh, people that are uh, you know, going through a developmental stage are particularly vulnerable to these hormone mimic chemicals that people didn't even know about when um, the Canadian Environmental Protection Act and the, the way that we assess chemicals was developed uh, you know, 20, 25 years ago. So there's a real need for an update so that uh, we're not looking at the average risk across all Canadians, but instead we're focusing in on um, where these chemicals are going to be impacting the people who are most vulnerable. Yeah, and I know the federal government's working on that now. And, and and this is correctly pointed out. I think when when stores say or when you know organizations say that they all the products that you tested meet applicable Canadian product regulations uh, and are and are safe for use for their intended purposes, they're correct too, are they not? I mean, it's it's the regulations that they're following. That's where the issue is. Is that right? That's right. Um, you know, they're following you know the regulatory regime. We didn't find anything in our study that. Uh, you know, violate Canadian law. Um, but what we were, you know, trying to point out here is that um, there is exposure pathways to a lot of these chemicals that are definitely dangerous, and uh, that we really need to ensure that um, you know people are not being exposed to them through legislative reform or voluntary action uh, by the c- companies themselves. You know, we we have done a lot of work with retailers, you know, to remove things like BPA from receipts or um, you know things like um, you know, th- these um, paint removers from that are very dangerous uh, from Canadian Tire, etc. Um, and all of that work matters, but it's very, very difficult uh, for an organization like ours or, or others who work in this sector to go chemical by chemical, retailer by retailer, um, to try and get these things removed voluntarily. And it really does underscore the the opportunity that we have coming up this fall when uh, the revisions to this bill finally come to Parliament after a couple of tries and, and uh, you know, many, many years of, of not succeeding uh, to get the reforms done. Tim Gray is with us. He's the executive director at Environmental Defense. Uh, they've just released a report called Passing the Buck, the Toxic Cost of Dollar Store Products in Canada. Uh, they've looked through, tested a lot of dollar store products, found that about one in four contained uh, some level of toxicity, all of it well within the bounds of legality in this country, but certainly some concerns about what exactly some of those products are. Lead, for instance, found in the soldering of earbuds and headphones and uh, other uh, products as well. Uh, not many other, lead not necessarily, but uh, they had concerns with other products as well. Uh, you mentioned that you'd like to see Environment Canada require companies to label all hazardous ingredients in products, including those that are hidden inside. Is that, uh, what's been the response to that and how feasible might that be? Yeah, it's a conversation that's ongoing right now. We're really encouraged by the fact that the Minister uh, of Environment and Climate Change, Stephen Gibault, has said that he's open to 
uh, further improvements in the bill. It did get some improvements when it went through the Senate. Um, this bill um, unconventionally started in the Senate, and now it's moving to uh, the House of Commons. Um, and we're looking to see if uh, issues like uh, labeling and you know transparency around what is actually included in some of these products uh, is something that we can see. Um, this has uh, happened in many other jurisdictions, Europe, California, uh, New York, for example. Um, so that's that's a, a, a key thing uh, as well that we'd like to see included in this bill. And I mentioned previously, you know, that to look at evaluating these chemicals based on who's being exposed to them, those uh, subsections of the Canadian population that may be more susceptible to them um, and, you know, assessing the impacts there. And then we need to look at banning entire classes of hazardous chemicals that are very uh, closely related. So there's a whole grouping of, of chemicals called PFASs. And these are the, the non-stick uh, non uh, Teflon kind of chemicals. And there's many, many of them. And uh, there's um, an indication from the federal government of looking at these chemicals all as a group and, and uh, taking um, measures to restrict them or ban them uh, collectively. So that, that's going to be very important as well. And then, of course, uh, you know, this, uh, the findings in this report really underscore the need for better regulatory enforcement and product testing uh, for products that are coming in outside of, from outside of the country and making sure that these chemicals are not getting into um, circulation so that uh, Canadians are actually ingesting them. You gave the report to uh, some of the stores you went to. Did you get any reaction from them? We did. Yes, we did. And we included the response in our report um, from uh, Dollarama. Um, they, uh, you know, as you mentioned, they said, you know, we're, we're complying with the law and we, you know, we care a lot about our customers. So we'll be going back to them, of course, and looking to have them take some of the measures that uh, some of their competitors have, for example, like removing BPS and BPA from their cash register receipts and uh, taking greater action to ensure things uh, that they're selling, in fact, do not uh, contain these high levels of, of toxins. Um, tell me about the cash register receipts, because that's one I had no idea about. I read through your report. Obviously, a lot of the ones, a lot of the terms you used, a lot of the products you were looking at were familiar to me. The, the cash register receipt was not. I, I had never heard of that, to be honest. Yeah, so uh, BPA is used in, in these receipts that are al almost ubiquitous now, the ones that uh, go through a machine, and uh, the heat in the machine actually is used to, to turn um, – uh, a dye uh, black so that you can actually see the writing when you get your cash register receipt from uh, you know printout from a credit card machine and uh, there's BPA BPS uh, in those it's the, the the most commonly used chemical but there are uh, safe substitutions available and uh, so we have been working to um, you know, get re retailers to switch. Uh, BPA and BPS were, were um, banned from baby bottles uh, about 12 years ago now, I guess. Yeah, a while back. Yeah, and, that. yeah, and so there's there's a recognition that this chemical is a hormone mimic and that there are uh, differential exposures from cash register receipts. Um, you know, probably some of the people that are most at risk from high levels um, being taken in through their skin are actual retail workers. You, know, you can imagine if you're working, for example, in a um, grocery store, uh, and you know, on the till there, you, you could be handling hundreds or maybe even thousands of these things a day. So um, obviously there's some real concern there. And we, we've done a lot of work with uh, United Food and Commercial Workers Union. Um, because of that, they're very concerned about the impacts on their, on their um, you know, the employees and their members. So 
Um, it is something that we're looking to see treated as a class uh, in this new approach to chemicals that looks at hormone uh, disruption and um, looks at hormone disruption um, specific to particularly vulnerable groups that are either getting very high levels of exposure or are more vulnerable because of their their life stage or or you know other aspects of of how they shop or where they live and you know it, it all needs to be assessed individually. Tim Gray, thank you so much for uh, for filling me in on what the report was all about. I read through it, but uh, thank you for expanding. Yeah, thanks so much, and thanks for having me on. 